Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet author Valerie Neiman, author of the novel To the Bones, the poetry collection Leopard Lady, A Life in Verse, and three other novels and poetry collections. Their views of To the Bones call it a parable on capitalism and environmental degradation set in a strange, disconcerted place populated by thoughtful, articulate people, trigger-happy rent-a-cops, zombies, and residents who can mysteriously evaporate or be stripped to the bone. Lisa Schaefer, curator of the Coney Island Museum, calls Leopard Lady a beautifully written book that is steeped in sideshow tradition and addressing issues of race, gender, self-concept, and creative expression. We start the show with a reading from To the Bones, where we learn in the opening pages that the protagonist was not the first occupant in a pit left for dead. Horrible smell. Dark. Cold. This is how it feels to be dead. Derek raised his head and immediately vomited. The nausea came in waves at every motion of his battered head, echoed by his back, ribs, legs. If he was dead, and this was the afterlife, then it seriously sucked. He breathed in through his mouth, but it didn't help much. The smell. He tried moving his left leg, numb and twisted under him, and was surprised when it responded. The pressure on his knee eased. He rolled over, put his hands down to push himself to all fours, and his fingers slid in something greasy and vile. If this was the afterlife, then it wasn't one he'd been prepared for by catechism classes or college philosophy. Dark. He shook with the cold and the dark. Then I'm not dead. He crawled, carefully anchoring his knees into the sloping ground, pausing whenever the nausea roiled his gut. Unsteady rocks shifted under his knees, and he heard a skittering sound. The last thing he remembered, he'd been driving. A two-lane road, the trees so close, an inky tunnel pierced by his headlights. Maybe the car went off the road. Maybe you're buried his unpleasant thoughts mocked. There was a faint lessening of the gloom ahead. He kept crawling, sticks rolling under his hand. Something chitinous and leggy moved across his fingers. He pulled his hand away, 
then put it back down. The thin gray light increased. He could see that, if not much else, with his glasses gone. And his shoes were gone, too, the toes of his socks dragging across the damp rocks. He seemed to hear things breathing nearby, waiting. No one's coming back for you, ever. He crawled around a ragged corner, and the light became a crack in the sky, a white intensity that squeezed shut his eyes and made the back of his head spasm in pain. He opened his eyes just enough to see a hazy field of rocks and debris, a dump. He picked up a large, round object and brought it close to his weak eyes. A pair of empty eye holes stared back. He flung the skull away, hearing it crack and roll to a stop, and he realized those rocks and sticks were bones and that he was among the dead. Fowley Neiman's fourth novel, To the Bones, is a genre-bending satire of the coal industry and its effects on Appalachia and joins her award-winning novels Blood Clay, Survivors, and Nina Gathering. Her third poetry collection, Leopard Lady, A Life in Verse, includes work that first appeared in the Missouri Review, Chautauqua, the Southern Poetry Review, and other journals. Her poetry has appeared widely, from poetry to the Georgia Review to the Galway Review, and has been published in numerous anthologies, including Eyes Glowing at the Edge of the Woods and Ghost Fishing, an eco-justice poetry anthology. Valerie has held state and NEA creative writing fellowships. A graduate of West Virginia University and Queens University of Charlotte and a former journalist, she teaches creative writing at North Carolina A&T State University. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Valerie, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great being here. Yeah, so you're a novelist and a poet. I am. Is that kind of like being right-handed and left-handed? That's a funny thing because when I was a child, I was ambidextrous until they kind of forced the left hand not to be so active because they thought it was better for you to have a dominant hand. And so, uh, but I was ambidextrous and I still do things backwards, including shooting. So, well, let's think of novel writing and poetry as being ambidextrous. (laughs) I think that's a good, good idea. We're going to get to your poetry uh, book in the second uh, half of the show, but first, let's talk about To the Bones. Uh, Great title. Did you just come up with that one dark and stormy night? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the genesis of this book is kind of uh, interesting. I lived and worked in West Virginia for many, many years. I was a reporter, newspaper editor, had a small farm, and was writing. I came to North Carolina, and I've, I've written a lot since then and and had some some, uh, success with the publications, but I was kind of stuck, and I was talking to a writer friend about 
I wasn't sure where I was going next. I wanted to start a new book, and and uh, I got a little frustrated, and I said, you know, back in West Virginia, I always said, if I was going to kill somebody, I'd throw them down a mine crack. Okay. <laughs> and he said, well, do it. And so that was the genesis. So I've got somebody who's been thrown down a mine crack, which is uh, an area that subsides from subsurface mining. And how did he get there? And who put him there? And why? And where does he go from here? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great hook. You really grab the reader with this opening read, being left among the bones, and the book's titled To the Bones. And it, it is a haunting story. And, it, I mean, is, is that environment uh, got a little haunting to it? I think it is a haunted landscape. In fact, that, that very term came to me this morning. I'm writing some other pieces. The combination of folklore that has come there from not only the British Isles, but all over the world. There are wonderful collections of folklores with many, many, many hauntings. Ruth Ann Music collected these. Among one of the really famous ones is the Greenbrier Ghost, where a woman's ghost came back and uh, was able to convict the man who killed her from that's beyond not, the not, grave. That's a nice twist. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah, the, the landscape of, of folklore, but also... The landscape of mining, which is so destructive of, of the people who do it and the people who are around it, everything from cave-ins in the mines to uh, pollution of the waterways to black lung, all of these things are, are a part of a very, very destructive practice, but also something that West Virginians have uh, a pride that they are able to do it. It's, mm. it's a difficult and deadly job. Yeah, and, and I was going to explore with you a minute this... Uh this idea of setting your novel in coal country. You, you spent a good deal of time there. You were a newspaper reporter. You covered the coal industry. You covered the police. And both appear in this book, right? I mean, you've Correct. got... And, uh, of course, the, the, the side that appears in this book is, is, is not the law and order side, <laughs> right? <laughs> did, you see, did you see much of the kind of thing, uh, uh, I guess, the other side of the coal industry that uh, maybe is not something that gets trumpeted in Washington these, these days? Well, I think one thing is that we think that a lot of this is in the past, that the days of uh, Sid Hatfield being gunned down on the courthouse steps, of uh, miners being gunned down in their encampments when they tried to form a union, literally machine guns mounted on rail cars that would drive mm. past. I mean, just horrendous violence. And you think, oh, that's all in the past. But it's, it's not so past. When I was a reporter, I covered wildcat mine strikes. And you still see, as we've seen in recent years, some, some terrible tragedies like the Upper Big Branch mine disaster where you know there was an explosion and men were killed. So it's, it's something that kind of it may be better today, but it's not gone away. Coal still has an inordinate amount of power, even as it kind of is fading away. The number of miners and, and the impact on the economy uh, goes down every year. But it's a legacy of King Coal, and, and much of the, the structure of things like taxation is built around extractive industries, whether it's coal, limestone, or timber. You, you talked about one side of the coal production industry, the disaster, the, the blowout, the pollution of the river. I think you alluded to it a few minutes ago. You've got a scene in the book where where that happens. Did you see anything like that in, oh, real, in I real sure, life? Sure did. When I was a, a newspaper reporter and then editor, uh, there was a, a huge blowout on the Cheat River. 
And, and, and describe what a blowout is. Well, acid mine drainage happens when the water percolates down naturally from, from rain and, and subsurface springs through the coal layers. And the coal in, the, in that region has sulfur in it. Sulfur plus water equals sulfuric acid. And that accumulates in something like an, an old disused mine uh, where it's not being actively pumped and treated, which it is required to be treated. And so there was a blowout on the Cheat River, which came from a, an old mine. And I had a, just a crackerjack reporter who covered this and who traced back exactly how this, this disaster came to be. And it came to be with some human intervention. So that was a, an inspiration for this. And, and in your book, in this scene I was talking about, it's almost as if the river was on fire. Is it, is it, can you get that hot? And it's, it, it's not hot. It's, it's just... It's the color. Oh, it, uh, it's this horrible uh, yellowish orange. They call it yellow boy. Uh, and, it's, and it's this just incredible color of the water that looks like it should be on fire, but it, it is in fact uh, not. But it's contaminated from um, the, both sulfuric acid and also uh, iron uh, metabolites uh, as well. Well, it... it sort of fits the theme of your book. And speaking of the theme of your book, uh, let's talk about this little town uh, which is beholden to the coal industry. Uh, this character who you read about in the first chapter, we're going to meet again in another reading. But the plot itself, West Virginia town, which is dying, you know, there are people in positions of authority who feel beholden to the owners of the mind even still um, there's a mystery here of course uh, the Kavanaugh's which are the evildoers in this <laughs> in this book you know they have sort of these supernatural powers are there little small towns in West Virginia that still exist that uh, that might form the setting for the movie version of your book well certainly the towns are still there I, yeah. I lived uh, my farm was close to one in fact my farm was over the, the surface of my, my property, I own the surface rights, which is all you ever own, uh, was over the workings of the Farmington Number no. 9 mine, which blew up 50 years ago. And so those workings ran under, and there was a mine crack in the back, so a lot of this is very personal in, in various ways. The towns are still there. You can still go to a lot of little places which are called coal camps, which have the, the, the company houses and that look very much the same in some ways as they might have, you know, 20 or 40 or 60 years ago if you just don't look at the dollar store, uh, but just look at the houses. But they found new life. I mean, they, they reinvigorate themselves even as the mines close. There's a, there's a do-it-yourself attitude among people in Appalachia that, that, you know, we can find other ways. And there's a lot of desire to move toward things like wind power, which would use those skills of miners who know how to operate high-tech machinery from operating long walls could, could be doing wind farms. Um, tourism is also a big thing because West Virginia is, in fact, despite the, the coal industry in its areas, it's still wild and wonderful. It's, it's a stunningly beautiful place. So there are other things going on. But certainly, I kind of I kind of stretched with this. I, I wanted to mm. take it in places, you know, with genre where, you know, if the if the coal mine owners can be monstrous and they have been, then let's really make them monstrous. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about that because you could have set you could have made this a mystery set in a small West Virginia town, even with the where the mines are, 
going out, and you could have set a mystery there, and you could have had somebody killing somebody or something, but you take it to another level with this mm-hmm. sort of supernatural. You don't know whether these exactly what these people are, and they've got this strange past. Is that what you're talking about in terms of taking it to a different level? Yeah, I actually I wanted to play with a lot of these sort of stereotypes. The first one being getting off at the wrong exit. A lot of horror yeah. movies have gone there, so <laughs> I, I, I wanted to use those things. And this yeah. is the territory of just. The area that I was in was not far from the Pennsylvania border, and just a little north of there was where George Romero was filming Night of the Living Dead. Mm. So, you know, there, there and are— There's a little bit of Night of the Living Dead. There is. This, yeah, yeah, a little yeah. bit of homage to, to Romero. So, okay, well, let's talk about the characters, and then you're going to have another read here. Um, you've got uh, the protagonist. He's Derek. He's a government auditor, and he's the fellow who just woke up among the bones, right? hmm Okay, and he doesn't know why or how he got there. He's got not a clue. All he remembers, he was driving. Next thing he knows, he's he's waking up. And so he'll have to recall and, and remember some of that. And then in this next scene, which I think is set in the point of view of... Lorana. She she yeah. works as a sweepstakes operator, and she's going to see Derek for the first time in this next scene. And then she sort of brings him into the fold because she's got a secret past, too, that she's trying to find a missing daughter, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, her daughter has disappeared. She came back to Redbird, that's the name of the town, and went to work for the Cavanaugh Coal and Limestone Company, which made her mother really angry. Then she disappears. So her mother followed her back to the town that she had wanted desperately to leave to try to track her down. And then you also throw a journalist in uh, who's become sort of instrumental in reporting on the oddities in the town and protecting Derek and Lorena and... uh, sort of helping to blow the whistle. Was there a little bit of you in this person, the, the journalist? Well, there's always a little bit of the writer in everybody. And, and, so and, a little and, bit in Derek and Lorana yeah. and the reporter Zadie, uh, even one of the Kavanaugh's. So uh, I think you, you find a little bit of yourself in, in your work. But the, the reporter's really sort of based on that great reporter who covered the coal mine spill with a little bit of some other reporters I've known. A little shout-out to the small-town reporter who does great work. All right, well, let's, let's have this scene where uh, Derek and Lorena meet. Then she saw the man. He was coming down the road from the fish camp, obviously shit-faced drunk, and with her luck, he'd become her problem. She wished she could lock the door and leave, but that would be the end of a job where she was hanging on by her toenails as it was. She fingered the pepper spray in the pocket of her smock, hoping he would just keep weaving his way toward town. No such luck. He might have been unsteady, but his path brought him right to her door. He pulled it open and stood there on the stoop. Oh, she should have followed her gut. First, that coat didn't fit him at all right. Then the blood, my God, his head and neck all black with it on one side. Finally, the smell that wafted on the cold breeze made her gag despite her best efforts. You best be going right back out, she said, trying not to breathe. Please help me. The man stood with his oversized boots wide apart. Thick glasses, probably broken from a face plant on some roadhouse floor, were cocked sideways on his nose. I was attacked, robbed. I need help. He moved inside, the door shutting behind him. She backed up, balancing the pepper spray on her left palm. Robbed? Where'd he come from with nothing down that way but the closed-up remnants of the fish camp? 
He didn't sound drunk or crazy, though how could you tell? But the smell. Robbed or not, how'd he come to smell like a deer lying dead on the side of the road for three summer days? Let me see your driver's license. Sweepstakes rules. That should send him on his way. I don't have it. Tell you what, I'll give you something to drink and you keep moving. You gotta have a license to use the machines. Just Lorana's luck that not a soul was inside. Maybe it was time to call the owner. He rubbed his disgusting hands up and down his stubbly face. I know I stink. You've got no idea where I've been. I was thrown down a hole, left for dead. Please just call the police for me. She laughed harshly and handed him a bottle of water. You don't call the police hereabouts, ever. Something seemed to click when she said that. His eyes got distant, then wary. I'm from the government. And you're here to help us, she finished. She would have laughed again, but he looked so stricken. This town, it's a strange place, she said. Things happen. People don't appear here, like you. They more disappear. You have a serial killer or something? Maybe something, Lorana said. The Kavanaugh's. My pap worked for them. They wrung every drop of sweat out of him. Pap died because he was used up. Never called in sick a day. Just plain used up, like everything around here. I guess small towns are like that. Damn, he dismissed her family, her life, just like that. But why me? I don't know anyone here. I have to get to the police. You're listening, but you ain't hearing. KCL owns the coal, the gas, the downtown, the trees, the land, anything worth grabbing, either outright or around the back ways. That means they own the people, too. She didn't care if she sounded bitter. Didn't you say there was a deputy there? Yeah. Cops, judges, politicians, the newspaper, even the UMW. Anyone that has any kind of pull. Because of these Kavanaugh's, they roost in their mansion behind their iron gates, and no one even sees them anymore. Somebody sees them. I imagine their creatures see them to get their orders. All right, Valor sounds a bit monstrous there <laughs> <laughs> with the creatures and the orders and, uh, and everything that goes with it. Uh, so did you have fun writing this book? How could you tell? <laughs> wow, I did. I had a lot of fun. I had struggled with the previous novel, still struggling with it, revising, revising, revising. Can't quite get it over the top. And so I wanted to write something that I could pull right out of my, my heart. Uh, I was in West Virginia. I, was, I went to school there. I farmed there. I, I was in that community. And so all of this was already in my head. And I didn't have to go looking for research or, or plotting out things like that. Uh, I, I knew the landscape. This was my landscape. And so it wrote very, very quickly. Uh, I am I, almost ashamed to say I finished it in less than a year because it usually takes me five years or so. So I feel like this just flew. That's great. Well, you get into that zone, you get moving. And so have you always been attracted to this uh this genre, this sort of uh, mysterious, if you maybe 
you know, as you say, monsters and creatures who go bump in the night? Well, again, West Virginia is a great place for monsters. There's the Flatwoods monster and the Mothman and all sorts of interesting critters. Uh, Yeah, I grew up reading the classics, but the classics that were available in, in our farmhouse were a very mixed lot and included Shakespeare and Tennyson and Poe. I read a lot of Poe. It wasn't maybe particularly age appropriate, but those were the Mm -hmm. books that were there when you lived out in the country. And then I discovered science fiction. And so I was a huge Bradbury fan and Le Guin and so many, many others. And so I have a, a deep affection for all of the speculative areas. My first book was science fiction set in Appalachia, so I kind of went back to the same landscape, but not in a in a science fiction mode. Yeah, and to be clear, this is not a it's not a blood and guts novel. It's uh, it has that sort of creepiness to it, but and it has this mystery to it, and it has you know sort of death and destruction. But it's not so overt on the page. Was that intentional on your part? Oh, yeah. I, I like horror, but I like classic horror. I don't like slasher films or, you know, mm-hmm. things that are just buckets of blood. So it's I consider it a, a, a literary novel that uses the, the genre format. So it it, uh, it, it's an, it is intended to be a really good read, but also I, I hope has something more to say. Uh, we got one more short read you're going to do right before the break here, and this involves a character named Marco. Tell us about Marco. Well, Marco is a, a good cop. There's good cops and bad cops in this town, and he's a good one. And he was forced off the sheriff's department because he kept asking questions about what happened to Dreama, and that wasn't something he was supposed to do. And Dreama was? Uh, the daughter of Lorena. And so he's been kicked off, and he's working uh as a, a janitor, because that's the only work he can find. He's got a wife, kids, and uh, you do what you got to do. And he's also got a bit of a crush still on Lorana after many, many years. Okay, take it away. Marco opened the door to Lorana's sharp knock, 11 right on the dot, but he pulled back at seeing not one, but two figures dark against the snow. What? A friend, Lorana said, let us in. Fuck, he thought, this was a mistake. Marco didn't allow them entry so much as Lorana bowled her way past him, the stranger in tow. He shut the door behind them and they faced each other in the unheated receiving room, breath puffing around their faces under the dim fluorescent bulbs. Who's this? New boyfriend? Marco sized him up with a glance. He'd have me on reach, but that's it. I could take him. Easy. I thought you were wanting to find out something about Dreama. I told you I wanted to see the mind maps. And how does that connect with Dreama and him? He knew how harsh his voice was, but was surprised to see bafflement move briefly across her face and disappear, an unguarded moment swallowed by her usual flat expression. How could she think this was okay? She already cost me one job. I'm asking again, who is this? The guy looked nervous, kept backing toward the door like he might bolt. The longer Marco looked at him, the less he thought easy. There's something weird there, that creep up the back feeling when you know that hostile eyes are on you, or the darkness of a room that is occupied by someone breathing, waiting. This is Derek. 
He's on our side. Which side is that? Whatever side isn't the Kavanaugh's, right? He was attacked out at the convenience store the other night, left for dead. Might could be that's what's happened to Dreama. The guy turned away and slowly bent his head so that the light could reach. An ugly wound showed with wholly inadequate butterfly bandages trying to hold the flesh together but allowing a view right down to the white of his skull. Marco began to laugh. Christ on a crutch, you're the zombie. You're the fucking walking dead. Hot damn, Lorana, you sure can pick em. She cut her eyes at him like, enough said. That's why we want to look at those mind maps. We need to find the mind crack because maybe Dreama is down there, Marco completed. And a bunch of other people, said Derek. Okay, so that's where the zombies come in, Valerie? <laughs> yes, that's where the zombies come in. <laughs> they, think, they think this guy who's walking around has just stumbled out of a mine early on. Uh, he, he looks probably kind of like the Walking Dead, right? And, and he to, does, yeah. and, and he's, uh, he's also got a, a genetic ailment that makes him uh, unable to keep his balance very well, which has been under control with medication, but when everything was taken from him, there's no more medication. So he's, he does walk oddly, and he's got a huge head wound, and he was walking down the road toward that sweepstakes parlor when a carload of locals saw him, and they have started the discussion or rumor that there are walking dead infesting Redbird. And, of course, that spreads very rapidly. So lots of un- unknowns in this book. You've got uh, one of the protagonists, Derek, who, who's got amnesia and can't remember what's happened to him. You've got... Uh, the female character he's met who's in search of her daughter and doesn't know what happened to her. And when you introduce the Kavanaugh's later in the book, things really get strange, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and we don't know what's going on uh, with them. So, you know, I tend to think of people who go down in the mines, and, and you mentioned this earlier, sort of a special breed. I mean, it's uh, it's as if they sort of become one with the land. You mentioned, you know, brown lung. You mentioned all the things that happened to them. They, they they're tied to the industry and it's difficult sometimes to escape, you know, that, that life, the life, which is not always healthy for them. But in this book, and without giving too much away, you do something with the characters, the Kavanaugh's who don't, you don't think of as going down into the mines and yet they're tied to the land even as much as the people who do go below the surface. That's very true. I, 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 sort of have a parallel thing happening with them and the beginning has bones and the end has bones in a different way but definitely they have a a strong connection to this land that they own and which they started as poor immigrants themselves mining their their ancestor literally with a pick and shovel so they feel that sort of um, ownership as the people who mine coal feel a kind of ownership that they know how to do this they they have a skill that other people cannot do and you look at miners today and and the miners who operate the underground equipment the long walls uh, as Lorana points out in one place you know they're college educated this is very high-tech equipment to extract this coal from the seams and it's not the the image of the 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 old-time image of the miner that's long since gone 
All right. Well, good stuff, listeners. When we come back, uh, we're going to do the writing life segment uh, with Valerie. We're also going to then dive into her poetry collection, Leopard Lady, which uh, which has uh, some eccentricities unto itself. So uh, stay with us. Hey, listeners, you may have heard that we now have a Patreon page where listeners who like what we're doing here at Charlotte Rear's podcast can help us help authors give voice to their written words. And when listeners do provide that support uh, and thanks and in gratitude for that support, we provide some additional benefits exclusive to our member supporters. Each month, we're going to provide at least one guest author episode. This will be an author who's appeared on the show who comes on to talk about the craft or business of writing, who also will provide some host-curated content each month, which could be some behind-the-scenes content. It could be some repurposed content without interruptions. It could be me speaking uh, about a particular topic or issue, or it could be me speaking with someone who's got something to share of interest to readers or writers who hasn't appeared on the show yet uh, as an author. In January, we're going to have twice as much content in each category. We've got Mark Kastrick and Tracy Curtis, who will speak. Mark has written 19 novels, most of the mysteries. He will speak on writing mysteries and the elements of a good story. Tracy Curtis, who's written over 500 humor essays for the Charlotte Observer, will speak about writing humor. I play the role of the writing student in both of these hour-long episodes, asking questions and recapping some of the important points of each presentation. In the host-curated area, uh, I have a sit-down with guest publicist, Anna Turner for about an hour where she discusses how to obtain reader engagement through digital marketing and creative events. Uh, A great episode for uh, writers who are interested in trying to develop a platform or get the word out about their writing. And then finally, there's an episode, an hour long, that's about the 47 things best-selling author Craig Johnson taught me about writing fiction. There's some great nuggets in here uh, from someone who's uh, written enough books, uh, has got a Netflix series uh, from those books, enough there to to gather some some helpful uh, tips on writing. Whether you become a member supporter or not, we still value you as a listener and we thank you for listening. But if you would like to help us help authors give voice to their written words, there is a way to do it now by going to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, all one word, or to the exclusive content page of our website. Thank you for your support. Hey, listeners, we're back with uh, Valerie Neiman. She's uh, the author of two books that we're featuring today, To the Bones, a novel, and uh, Leopard Lady, a collection of poetry. But we're going to talk writing life for just a moment. Uh, Valerie, you teach creative writing at... uh, North Carolina A&T University. Can you talk about your transition from newspaper reporter to teacher? I think it was a, a long process. I always knew I was going to write, that I wanted to write, and I would write. I just didn't know how to get there. My family were factory people and uh, farmers. People didn't go to college. And I really didn't know how to do that. I went to a rural school where most of the girls got married, and they kind of didn't know what to do with me, I think, and I didn't know what to do with myself. So I did go to college and got a bachelor's degree in journalism because that seemed, well, that's writing, Mm -hmm. and then I can write and, and learn. So I went to work at newspapers, and I really, I treasure that because I had so much experience Everything was material. 
I was out there doing interviews. I was doing all kinds of stories. I went down in a working coal mine, which um, certainly gave me material for the book. I did all of these things that, that made me a better writer. And so I don't regret the years spent as a journalist as opposed to teaching. But there came a time when I knew that newspaper journalism was in trouble, which I think we all recognize. And I thought, I should do a plan B. And so, so you went back to get your MFA in creative writing. Yes. And, and you did it here locally at Queens, right? I was at Queens University of Charlotte very early in their low residency program. Graduated in 2004, and that translated into a full-time tenure-track position at North Carolina A&T, where I taught journalism, humanities, and all the time moving more and more till today I teach only creative writing. Yeah, but you also told me you teach another course. It's kind of fun, right? Oh, yeah. I teach a film course on science fiction and horror film. See, that's where you're getting all your stuff, right? <laughs> well, it's just it's fun to spend the time with the students. Yeah. Talk, we, we focus on mad scientists because it's such a broad field. And so every week I go in and we look at clips or we look at a movie, and they've looked at movies, and, and we talk about what does it mean to be a, a scientist and how, how have movies shown scientists and you know, what are the ethics of science, and it's, it's a blast. So I think of, you know, I've had journalists on here who've become authors of novels, and, but I think of journalism and writing a novel as taking sort of two, two different skill sets. And I'm curious as to what you had to sort of unteach yourself or guard against from your journalism days and what your journalism days actually did to enhance your writing. Well, one thing about being a journalist is that you are taught to write very tightly. There's no room for fluff. And I don't think that's a bad thing. My novels are very tight and they read fast because I don't go off on digressions here, there, and elsewhere. It's not a 500-page book. It's a very tight read. Uh, I think that's a, a good thing. It's more the, the Hemingway style than the uh, uh Tom Wolf style. But there's not a lot of time for character development in a, uh, in a journalist piece, right? You got, you're, you're reporting the news you're, sometimes, unless you're doing a, a feature. I did a lot of feature. You did do some features. Yeah, I did okay. a lot of feature writing. And there you really are trying to get to character right. and to Well, that's to good. That, that is, a, that is a, a grounding for you then in this, mm-hmm. in this world. I think the, the one thing that's a drawback for me is that when – I had someone at Queen's University, one of the professors, point this out to me, that, as he said, my writing was, um, my paragraphs were, were democratic. Well, and I, I uh, had, fl- flesh that out. I had no idea what he meant. <laughs> and he had to explain to me that I tended to write in, in a very staccato way that I did have a lot of short paragraphs because you're taught in, in journalism to do that so the reader can, you know, move along through the story readily so I had to kind of unlearn that and give myself a little breathing room well that, that's true for literary fiction which is what you're writing here but you also when you're p- picking up your pace you you go to shorter paragraphs and you go to mm-hmm. because readers there's more white space on the page they can move through it more quickly so and dialogue dialogue you want to be crisp and moving back and forth uh, people don't unless they're college professors uh give long speeches. We're always interrupting each other and talking back and forth. So dialogue tends to, you know, move right along in a very good clip. Well, I know that uh, as a reporter, you had deadlines. Now you've got to come up with your own deadlines and stick to them, right? Do you have a routine that you follow? 
Oh dear, you're supposed to say the things. <laughs> you're they, supposed to say. Yes, I get up every morning at four thirty yeah. and I write for four hours. I wish that was true. Right. I think it, it could be again a legacy of being a reporter is that I was always used to working in a very fragmented way. You'd have three different stories working, and then the the thing would go off on the wall, the scanner, and there'd be a four-car wreck somewhere, and you'd have to drop everything, and you go out to that, and you cover that, and then you pick up the feature story for Sunday. And you learn to have all of these balls in the air. Hmm. And I think that continues. I, I am always working on a novel and poetry at the same time. And so when one thing isn't moving, the other one is moving. And I don't find that a problem, but I think some people might. That's just that's just my way of working. I think I'm always writing. I might not be sitting at my desk, but I'm always observing and paying attention and taking notes. And one thing my students have taught me is to put my poems on my phone because they come to class and they say, I've got my phone, I've got my phone, my poem on my phone. And it's like, that's all right. And so I do the same thing. I'm always writing on my phone. Poetry on the phone, okay. So speaking to your students, um, what do you tell your students on the first day of your creative writing course? Well, I want them to believe in their own stories and their own voices. And I think that's the hardest thing to learn because it, it, for, it was for me because growing up in a very rural area in a working class family, I didn't think my stories were interesting. And I thought I had to write about, you know, faraway places and important people. And I had to unlearn that. And for them, I think it's much the same. They see what's on television and movies, and it's all rich people with fancy cars living in New York and L.A. And to try to, to get them to come home and to think about their own families, their own communities, the stories that emerge from their lives and that are genuine, that they know what is at stake and they know the people who are involved, and they can write with great power. Do your students inspire you? Oh, Yeah. I have learned so much. Uh, they they keep me uh, current. It would be very easy to become the like, like putting poetry on the phone, right? It would be easy <laughs> to become the you know sort of hidebound professor who you know is still teaching the same thing they taught thirty years ago. And they won't they won't let me do that. They keep me honest, and and they keep me reading new things and watching things movies that I might not have watched and paying attention. I, I can't keep up with the music, I will admit that. I've sort of let the music get by me, but I, I do try to keep up in other areas. And you, and you run into them at, uh, at the oddest of places. We, uh, we're recording here at the Advent Coworking Studio, and you ran into one of your former students today, right? I did, and the strange <laughs> thing was I have terrible memory for, name, uh, for names. But I listened to his voice. He was over there on the phone, and I thought, he sounds familiar. And then he looked up, and he said hello, and... and uh, he had to give me his name, but I remembered him. He had been in one of my news writing classes 12 years ago, and uh, he remembered me, and I, I remembered his voice. All right, final question, then we'll move to uh, Leopard Lady. Rejection. Your students see it. I assume you've seen it before. Thoughts. What do you tell your students? You have to get a thick skin. You will get a lot of rejection. If you just want to get published, you certainly can do, as many people do, self-publication or seek out more entry-level journals. But if you are pushing yourself and you want excellence, then that means you're going to face rejection. If you're submitting to 
difficult markets that take 1% of everything they get, then you're going to have a very tough go of it. But when you, you achieve that, then you can really feel like, I've, I've made it. I've, I've achieved a certain level. So I do tell them that rejection is simply a fact of life. You have so many writers. You have so many manuscripts. I've been a, an editor for two literary journals. And they come. They used to come in stacks of manila envelopes that, that went to the ceiling. Well, now they come in through the electronic portal. And it, it's just almost a ceaseless wave. So there are so many good writers and so much good work out there and there just isn't room for all of it but if you're persistent you will find your way right the fact that it's rejected doesn't mean that it's bad necessarily correct just doesn't fit for that editor on that day well i'm looking at the cover here of leopard lady a life in verse Uh, what are we looking at here (laughs) well that's that's another story the whole story of leopard lady in in brief is that i was sitting on my porch one night writing in my journal trying to come up with something and this voice began and would not let me go 13 pages of dictation later I came out of it and thought what was that see people who aren't writers don't understand this but it happens right it 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 just comes to you sometimes well but it's usually something that comes to me in my voice this was not my voice, voice and it was nobody I knew and so I was a bit wary of this and it took me a long time to write this book because I had to wait for Dinah to tell me her story. Dinah is the character on the cover of this book? Yeah and the image is one that I painted. I am no artist. I don't claim to be but I went to Coney Island and they had a workshop in painting carnival banners where you learned about the history and why they have a certain look and you know the the sideshow and its place in American culture and you paint and so I went there in search of Dinah and painted this image to try to get my hands around who, who is this person who's speaking to me and what is what has her life been and how has she ended up in the sideshow? So, um, yeah, that's okay. my image. Okay, so we're going to have – we get, as poetry is sometimes, the, the reads aren't very long. Um, lots, of, lots of material there, but not as many words. That's what we have. But before we read a few – uh, just a little bit about uh, the collection itself. You've got some characters. Uh, this is it's it's what I I guess this is a a collection that tells a story, right? Mm-hmm. So you read it front to back, and it's more than just poems of different types. You've got you've got Dinah, she's the leopard lady, right? And you've got the professor. Yes. Tell us about the professor. Uh, the professor joins the book Midway, another voice that appeared that I couldn't ignore. He's a younger character, a younger man, who was a divinity student. He was going to be a a member of the clergy, but he lost his faith. And so he's a wanderer, he's a searcher, he washes up at this two-bit carnival and becomes uh, the professor, which is one of the things they call the the man in the sideshow tent who goes around and explains the the fictional history of these different people who are exhibiting themselves, how the terrible snake man became the terrible snake man, or you know what the leopard lady story is. And he and, and Dinah develop a close friendship and one that uh, is going to last them through the end of the book. Now, it, is attending county fairs something in your... 
youthful past as well? Oh, I love fairs and and the smell, fireman's days, and and uh, all of these these sort of things. When I was a kid, however, I never went in the sideshow. There uh, were still a few floating around then. They they really kind of went away in the the sixties to seventies because people didn't think it was good to look at people with uh, various ailments anymore for amusement. But in their in their day in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, they were. They were really kind of a refuge for people who were different because in the, the wider world, they would have maybe been institutionalized or locked up by their families because they had these, these deformities or ailments. But within the world of the sideshow, even though they were, could be considered in some way exploited, they also had control of their own destinies. They traveled, they made money, they had a supportive community. So it's a, 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 there are two sides to that coin. So no, I never went in a sideshow, but I always looked at the, at the, uh, the banners, and I did go to Ripley's Believe It or Not and look at the things there. <laughs> All right. So well, let's start with uh, The Leopard Lady Speaks, which is the first poem of the book. And it was the first thing she said to me that night, almost intact. The Leopard Lady Speaks. This leopard skin come on to me when I lost love. This is not for the marks to know. When my man's absence set a hot kindle of distrust that blowed back on me as lack of faith in what is more worthy than some handful of spit and dust. No wonder I lost my natural color trying to be all things to him, and him not wanting what I ever was or become or any between, turning away like a spoilt child, turning away like the sun eat up by the moon, and not my doing or undoing. I scourged my soul, turning myself inside out to make him a better tent against the weather of the world, stretching myself across his failings like a worn-through quilt on a wide, cold bed. There weren't enough left to me then to fill a thimble, but I gathered myself back up and stood, feet reasonable to the earth, liver and light settling back like I'd been dropped from a high place. And I was about satisfied, but the letting go of that man, him of me, then me of him, left me streaked, specked, and spotted like the flocks of Jacob, and I opened my mouth to say the true things that underprop the world. So, Valerie, we start here. It looks like a relationship that's uh, gone south. Uh, there's some abandonment here. Tell us a little bit about what uh, this voice was saying to you when these words came out. Well, Dinah, and it took her a while for, to give me her name, is a child who was orphaned at birth, biracial child, in uh, Appalachia, in Kentucky. And she goes through cycles of abuse and abandonment. She's, uh, of course, abandoned at birth. A family is, uh, she's given to a family who use her as a servant. And she runs away from there, joins a carnival, uh, meets one man who leaves her, meets the love of her life, Shelby, who leaves her. But she is just indomitable. She always rises. So even though it's a story of a of, of, of very difficult life, uh, she is triumphant at the end. And, and these spots, I would, I would say they're metaphorical, but uh, we're in a sideshow, right? They are not metaphorical. <laughs> uh, they are a result of a, an autoimmune condition called vitiligo, where you 
uh, lose your um, melanin in your skin. And people of any race can have it. I have it. But if you are uh, darker skinned, then it's much more noticeable because you literally have albino patches uh, with no melanin whatsoever. And it's been a, a tradition in sideshows that you had people with this particular ailment who would call themselves, you know, leopard boy, leopard girl, leopard man, and, and uh, would be uh, part of the sideshow. Uh, we've got another poem where the leopard lady tells her spots. So let's uh, set kind of a transition to that. The leopard lady tells her spots. Don't be looking for what's daubed on that banner. The leopard lady naked in the jungle. Brown skin all over with black spots like wallpaper on a wall. I'm more so like a spotted hound or the rump of the Appaloosie our trick rider uses. White strode over dark. But truly, like the banner says, I am alive. Inside the tent, I rest on a high stool, wrapped in red, till the professor brings them round and spiels a story that ain't mine. I keep my back to the crowd, but they spy my hands, spotted like trout fish, resting on my shoulders. I hear them rustle and breathe, and then I let the silk slide down. Nothing there, one says out. My back is perfect brown, except for a patch on my backbone just above the spangly girdle I wear for modesty, but it's scarce that. The silk be whispering louder than them as the kimono falls and I turn and stand. They see me top to toe, all over speckled, face to breast to ankles, my affliction being such that where one side is marked, so will be the other. Here I am. Then the light dims down and the crowd shuffles along to see the terrible snake man of the Amazon, and I gather up my red to cover my nakedness. So, Valerie, uh, we don't, as you said, we don't have sideshows anymore where people pay to go in to see people with, um, whether it be skin conditions or some other deformity we're talking about uh, a public that's attracted to the unusual to the exotic well i think the public has always been attracted to the unusual and exotic it's just that we do it in different ways now it's not acceptable to you know look and point and laugh at someone who who has something different about them um i think we've come a very long way there are still sideshows but they they have lost that freak show aspect. Uh, now it's uh, pretty much strictly working acts, people who have a skill. They're sword swallowers, fire eaters. Uh, they sit in the electric chair. They are contortionists. They're people who have trained themselves, and those are called working acts as opposed to naturals, who are people that are, are born that way. Yeah, there, there are a lot of people that deal with a lot of things like this and it's it's just it's just a physical thing you know it's not doesn't get to the heart of who people are right and that's that's what dinah knows and what the professor knows as, as part of this community that and that's why it's not the story that he's that he's telling right it's no not her they story. have a fake story yeah. the, the strange thing is is that a lot of the uh, carnival is humbug but a lot of it is true it's just they they disguise their own histories with these these made up uh, lurid histories of where these people came from and and people with conditions that 
speaking of skin conditions, there are people that uh, have a particular kind of thing where their skin scales and they have sort of a fishy looking skin. So they would make up a thing about them having been swallowed by a fish when they were an infant <laughs> or some, some crazy, crazy thing like that like that and it's you know it's a sort of a, a mask or disguise uh, of their real natures well speaking of the professor you've got one that's a very short read uh, called the calling could you read that to us the calling i thought i heard the voice of god when i was eight a clear snap of something breaking a twig or a bone and in the space that was left my name, Jonathan, oh Jonathan, Episcopalians all on my mother's side, a glory of gold and lace and proper tales of vocation. Noah walked with God, I learned, and laggard Moses heard his name twice called. In Sunday school and seminary, I sought out the stories. I labored in the fields of Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek, as if new letters would invite that voice again. I did not ask for the earthquake, nor the fire, nor the great and mighty wind, only the still, small voice to once more say my name. Instead, it was Malechapo. Why are you here? What had I to do with God? I walked and waited, slept and sighed, dreamed for a dream, but the lamp of God had long ago gone out, and never again was my name called in the night. So how did the Episcopalians get in this one? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he's, he's lost his faith. He's here at this uh, sideshow. Uh, Dinah, on the other hand, is a woman of of great faith. And so the two of them debate this whole issue of God and man. And she knows her Bible very well and schools him sometimes. It's a a fun sort of byplay between the two of them uh, that she was not well-educated as a child. They didn't think that was necessary. But she taught herself, and the books she had available were the King James Bible and a volume of Shakespeare. So her language is definitely affected by that so can you give our listeners uh, a little bit of a teaser here about what they're going to find when they read this from sort of start to finish don't give away the ending but kind of give us some direction where we're going well it it is a life story it's it's dinah's life story from her birth uh, until she's about age 45 and half of the book is concerned with her relationship with the professor and he also is afflicted. Uh, he was a blue baby, which people don't know that anymore. It's not a term we use, but in the, from the mid-50s before, uh, children who were born with a, a particular uh, congenital deformity of the heart didn't get enough oxygen, and they were blue. Their lips were mm-hmm. blue. Their skin had a bluish tinge, and they died young because they, they were misrouted. And a, an interesting team of a, a surgeon, a, an African-American surgical assistant, and a female nurse figured out how to fix that. And they started these uh, surgeries to fix blue babies, and they did. And he was one of the first ones. But this, they, they continued to have problems. I mean, they, they had ongoing issues, and he has ongoing issues. So he has an affliction of his own, and uh, Dinah certainly has 
has her uh, spots to deal with. She goes through a lot of uh, different roles in the book. She starts out as a dancer. They put her on the stage as a hoochie-coochie dancer. She's 14 years old. Then she becomes a psychic, learns how to be a fortune teller, and uh, finally becomes the leopard lady and, and exhibits her, her physical uh, form. So by the end of the book, she will have come into a real acceptance and a, and a power in herself. She no longer feels like you know the, the abandoned or misused child. She is a, a woman of, of strength and character and, uh, and a place of her own in the world. Yeah, and you can hear a little bit of that in, in the poem, The Leopard Lady Tells Her Spots. I suppose this came to you and you said, oh, I'm going to write this as a poetry book. But how did you know whether it should be poetry or prose? (laughs) Because it is a a narrative. Uh, It came as poetry. And at first I thought that first burst, I thought, well, maybe that's all there is. But the poems kept coming and then the second voice came in. And so I realized I was going to have to take it as it came, which was the through individual poems that added up to a life story, which is, is not, you know, many people have done this. You're making this sound like a seance a little bit here, you know, like you get I know. It. It's, it's very, uh, and the voices were different in, in the form of the poems. Hers were always free verse, and when the professor started speaking, it was a much more, you know, educated voice, but there was something about the rhythm, and I was trying to, you know, figure out what it was, and I realized... It's blank verse. It's Miltonic blank verse. It's iambic pentameter. And so his poems are all in that form, and, and hers are in, in free verse. But it was more that it was that the form came with the poem, which it often does. I, you know, I'll start a poem, and the form makes itself evident pretty clear pretty soon. So that's not unusual to this book, but it, it is something the, the, the poem itself will tell you what it wants to be. All right, I've got one more. It's about 41 seconds, pretty short. Uh, when I was flipping through, reading the different poems in the book, I saw this one. I said, I'm not sure exactly how this one fits in, but I want to hear this one. <laughs> <laughs> so let's read, You Don't Leave It on the Side of the Road. You don't leave it on the side of the road. Only the skunk, who is precious in the sight of the Almighty, for his first fingers marked its back like you'd stroke a cat's. That piss kitty just humping across the road, heading for what egg-breaking or cricket-hunting it does in the night. When the tire finds it and the wheel, the bump too small to be a body broken, but it was, raises up a smell from earth to heaven like a mortal soul, clinched for the longest time to the ankle of its death. You're making me think about skunks in a different light now, Valerie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when I see that white mark on the back, the hand of God has touched the skunk. Well, that's the way Dinah would see. She's a, an observer of the world. There are quite a few nature poems in the book because she pays attention to the natural world because for her it's a manifestation of the divine. So God is God is present even with the skunk. Even with the skunk. All right, well, that, that's a... Maybe that's a great way to <laughs> wrap things up today. It's, uh, it's been wonderful having you on the show. I'm going to have information in the show notes for how to uh, connect with uh, Valerie at her, at her website and on social media. I'll have some other links there and some uh, pictures of her book covers and things of that nature. Valerie, it's been wonderful having you on the show today. Oh, this was a great interview. Thank you, Landis. You're welcome. really enjoyed this. 
Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.